Welcome back to Couture Conversations podcast. On today's episode, I have the CEO and founder of Brett Lauren Jewelry. You may have already seen her in publications like InStyle, Lucky Magazine, LA Times, The New York Post, The Today Show, among so many other incredible outlets. I'm so honored to have an opportunity to talk with her, and she shares incredible wisdom, not just about being a founder and entrepreneur, but also wisdom about the fashion industry. She grew up in an environment around the fashion industry and brings an incredible amount of knowledge and value to this episode. Definitely going to be learning a thing or two. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode. Hey y'all, welcome to Couture Conversations Podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Steele. Because I have a background in the fashion industry, I was intrigued by what you had to say in some of your podcasts going to college for fashion or fashion merchandising or things. And I have a niece who is a freshman in college and she's like, I'm going to go study fashion marketing or something. And I was like, you can study marketing and then you're going to study business. Right. Business made her head explode. Her sister was like, you can't tell her that. She did. It all sounds like numbers. I said, okay, then you're going to study entrepreneurship because Fashion is changing so fast. There aren't going to be jobs and buyers in four years when you're out. There's like three buyers left and they all work on algorithms. You're, you, you had one comment like, I'm working with a multi-million dollar open to buy. Yes. You know, somebody else is like, I always joke when people say, oh, you're in the fashion business when I used to be. And I was like, yeah, I come up with new names for the color blue. Like, yes yes I know what you mean what what am I doing here but that it's a business oh yeah it is all about nuts and bolts and numbers I mean as an example before we got on this call about an hour ago I got an email from one of my suppliers that I've been working with for at least seven years said prices have increased like okay I get it you know, and I had a certain, a line item discount, if you will. And he's like, yeah, it's gone. And I went, it gone? Can you find a happy medium and you're doing this right before the holidays? Like, I can't work with you anymore. Yeah. Mm. And I'm going, oh my God. And so when, also when you just reference, oh, it's, you know, we built our dreams and people say to me, oh, you're, you're living your dream. And I was like, really? This is my dream? <laughs> no, no regular paycheck, no insurance, nobody to blame anything on. This is my dream. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh yeah, I guess it kind of was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was working towards it, but I've been working towards it forever. It is interesting when we take a look back on things and what led us there. And yes, business, fashion is a business. It is dealing with numbers. It is negotiating. It is organizing. It is everything. Sure. You have to have a passion and a, and a love for art. I think it's a beautiful combination of art and business, mm-hmm. but what you can't forget. And I love that you picked up on that on other episodes because it is such a business. 
managing, as you know, managing your own, you know, planning and allotment of where you want your funds to go every month. What vendors am I working with? What suppliers? What manufacturers? All right. How am I going to source this? How much is this going to cost? So on and so forth and planning all of that out. What was it that attracted you to the jewelry industry to, to begin with? I am a frustrated arts and crafts counselor. Love it. Okay. I probably should have just like gotten out of college and gone and applied at Martha Stewart or something because give me, I just, I like to make things. I like to tinker. I like to figure out how things get made. So maybe that comes from my upbringing. So my father was a clothing designer, women's fashion. My mother was actually like the handy person in the house. Dad would leave for Hong Kong for three weeks in the eighties to go get the silk blouse line made. And my mother would come home and say, I think there's hardwood floors in the kitchen underneath seven layers of linoleum and start ripping things up or let's go retile the bathroom. So I come from both sides, for which I'm very grateful. And my career in the fashion industry where I spent probably 25 years was mostly in production operations, sourcing product development. I was in sales. I was, wasn't a designer, more of a merchandiser. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of us are is we, we see things that we like and that we have a feel that they'll go well together. I'm a merchandiser, but with the jewelry, I always saw things that I liked and wanted to figure out how they got made. And actually a dear friend of our family, probably 30 years ago, gave me, a. she's a goldsmith, gave me a catalog from the jewelry supply company. And I read the catalog and it started my mind with the reverse engineering. It's like, oh, if this is the tool that you use or the machine that you use to get this result, then I could design into that. So it was very similar to running fashion production, having the designers design into the production capabilities. If we can't get it made, then don't design it. That's, I think, where a lot of my jewelry experience came from was just learning how to make things and playing with tools and supplies and having fun with it. It was really just always a hobby. And half the time I never showed anybody anything or sold anything because it was just about the process. Then finally decided to go for it after years and years in fashion and the industry had changed so much. Mm. The ways in which people communicated and product was manufactured and delivered and it just wasn't something that I was passionate about anymore. Mm-hmm. I think I was spoiled the way I grew up in it and how much mm-hmm. it became. It's not a bad thing. It's, I think, a natural evolution, but it's way more challenging. It's a very challenging environment, but it was so wild to me how quickly things changed, you know, processes and, and it was it became a bit daunting. And so I was tired of being a glorified accountant, similar, you know, it just, it became so daunting. I was like, this is not why I got into this industry to begin with. Just because things are changing, it doesn't mean that they're a bad thing. I completely agree with you. But it's also remembering like the beauty of what 
the brand is actually making, what the brand is actually doing and not losing sight of, of still maintaining brand consistency across the board. So that's, that's interesting take on that. When you were in the fashion industry and, you know, in that grind, which I resonate with so much so, and you were hesitant to begin your jewelry brand, it was something that was just so, you were doing as a passion project for so long. What was the switch? What was like, what really made you say, I'm going for it? It was the culmination of a lot of conversations with buyers in a very short window where I was just constantly making excuses for the fact that the company I was with was not delivering. And the buyer said, you know, we, we know it's not you, but I'd had that conversation so many times over the course of my career. And as it was becoming more and more frequent and Mm -hmm. my heart was not in it, that it was time. And I also said, at the time that I'm 45 years old, I'm on my own. There's nobody else. I, I'm single. I don't have children. I'm not responsible to anybody else. So if I'm ever going to try this, now's the time. I walked away from a career mm-hmm. that had its ups and downs and its pros and cons and something I didn't think I wanted to do in the very beginning, but I did love it. There's a lot that I miss. I think that's a piece that a lot of people almost don't realize is that when you call out as an entrepreneur, there's no calling out. You are the one who's running the show. There's no, you know, paid time off (laughs) or, or, you know, and there's no, um, you're not starting your own company and you automatically have health insurance. There's no security of if I want to go and take three weeks off on a sabbatical that there's none of that. There's none of that security. There's none of that um, comfort level that we once were so accustomed to. And I'm curious to learn what are the things that, you know, that you miss and maybe would even caution people to really think through before actually going forth with it. Like not just on a financial standpoint, but more so like on a mental standpoint to mentally prepare the difference of the two. It can be very lonely. I work for myself, have associates, people that I will outsource things to or production teams or people that I will talk with, but it's nothing like walking into an environment where there's energy and things happening and not everything is all about you and what you're doing when you're mm-hmm. part of it outside influences, uh, bouncing ideas off of people, other creative ideas. I I miss a lot of that, the, the life of a solopreneur. I wouldn't change it. I often say that I don't want to work for anybody else ever again. But if someone would tell me where to be and what to do at nine o'clock on Monday morning, I, <laughs> because lack of structure, lack of discipline, total squirrel syndrome, like, oh, this came in, I've got to deal with this right now. It's like, no, you don't. (laughs) You need to finish what you started. Really, really challenging. When I was living in Southern California, one of my best friends would check in during the day and we worked completely opposite schedules. And mine as an entrepreneur is pretty much 24-7 anyways. At two in the afternoon, or we're going to the movie at three o'clock. And I'm like, okay, have fun. 
<laughs> well, isn't that why you work for yourself so you can do these things? I was like, not right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Myself to build this so, you know, later on I I can call you from an island. Mm-hmm. I have to make payroll. I have to make rent. I have to pay my suppliers. It, it, it's just a whole different thing. I think that is a super misconception um, that, you know, you think just because you own a company that you have all of this free time and that you are able to work when you want. And sure, yeah, you are able to work when you want, but there's a really big difference of needing to work and I must do whatever it takes to make ends meet in my first couple of years of launching a company. It's it is a really big mental shift for you. What are the kind of the tools that you've kind of outsourced or, you know, that you've kind of done to remedy these, you know, hard, these stressful times that are so normal and part of everyone's process. I'm curious to learn what, what you've done to kind of help th- get through it. A couple years ago, probably four years ago, I finally admitted that I needed help mm-hmm. because I was, existing in a do as I say, not as I do. My ego was definitely in the way because of my experience in the fashion industry. It really just rolled over into a different kind of product and me being responsible for it. But I was like, oh yeah, I got that. I got that. I know what to do. I know what to do. I mean, heck, I have counseled and coached other people set up their businesses and show them what to do. And I was breaking every rule that I told them because it was me. And the reality is we can't do it all. And there are a bunch of things that we don't do well. We don't like to do. So I think asking for help and surrendering some of that, let me be clear, it's four years later, I'm not any better at it. Seriously, people sit down with me and they house things and I am, I am a broken record. My, the beginning of my path to that was joining an online jewelry designers community that I saw on Facebook. And that was a game changer for me in so many ways. Mm-hmm. I learned some things, but it was truly, it was more about the community. It was about the exercises. It was about meeting up in person and or virtually with other women entrepreneurs. That's the beauty of these other groups, the, mm-hmm. the female founder collective and the 10 past that were a part of. I mean, it's huge. I would love to stop time and spend a week diving into the Female Founder Collective. Mm-hmm. I don't talk. And they're turning out so much information that I can't keep up. I think those are things that are tremendously important. With that is also finding a level of discipline to say, you know what? I know I should be looking at that, but I can't look at it right now. You know, I sell my product through a website. Website hosting company sends blogs out every day do this, do this, do this. I haven't looked at the ones from last week. I'm looking at this one and now you want me to do this. And it's a really evil, sinister spinning wheel that I have to stop myself regularly and say, you know what? Like, don't even look. Priority shifts and structure, I think are the two biggest, I think, in my opinion, you know, learning curves going from an employee to your own boss. It's like 
not only do we have to learn these processes, but also practice what we preach. I can't even tell you the amount of times where I'll tell my I'll tell my team to do something and that I'm like, oh shoot, I'm actually not even doing that myself because I'm not making time for it. It's it's really interesting because you know that the practices will work. You know that that's what you need to do, but somehow there's this barrier that's not allowing us to do it. And It all comes down to, in my, from what I've witnessed, and I'm so guilty of doing exactly what you're saying, by the way, I'm like, I'm like listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I do the exact same thing where I will get totally derailed by something that I didn't need to get to right then and there that took me away from something that was going to drive business for my, for my business. It's a really hard shift to get into that process of doing it. And so I was listening to another podcast, The Robin Graham Show, which I love. She was talking about how <laughs> how self-discipline is one of the hardest things she's ever had to master as an entrepreneur. I think anytime I talk to a founder that's creative, like you and I, my uh, business partner, Emily, calls me the crazy creative that you know she keeps on the rails, where you have the vision. But it's really true where when you're creative and you're wanting to make beautiful things and uh, create beautiful processes, it's tough to shift into that operational structure mode. It's something that I think that you said it so beautifully. Surrender. (laughs) Surrender to what you need help with and just realize you can't do it yourself. You can't do it all yourself. Surrender to what you need help with. I love that phrase so much. I like want to write it down. So (laughs) surrender yourself to what you need help with. I'm just going to say that one more time in case anybody listening right now wants to write it down themselves. So when you're in your creative process, when you're making these beautiful pieces that people take home and love and enjoy, what, what do you want each one of your customers to feel when they come to your website? I want them to feel welcome. I want them to feel inspired. I want them to feel important and appreciated that we appreciate their support, their business. And I want them to feel a sense of community about being a part of something bigger, hopefully because of the product, but because of the people that we employ to do our production. I would say probably 85% of the production since I started my business has been done by women from homeless shelters, recovery houses, and women who are survivors of domestic violence, trafficking, refugees, mental health issues, divorce, and sort of runs the gamut. Women who were born into the system, women who just found themselves there through unfortunate circumstances. I want them to be educated about why a lot of women are homeless. And that's something we're working on highlighting more on the platform or in the, in the platform, on the platform, on the website. Um, in addition to bringing more mental health awareness and advocacy to it. You know, one of the biggest obstacles for a lot of these women working full time is childcare and or public transportation. It's so admirable that you are advocating and giving work to those who are struggling, who are having a hard time. But what led you to to wanting to work with with that particular sector? I don't really know where it started. I know that, speaking very bluntly, 
I was born a lucky little white girl in America into a loving, supportive nuclear family. I did nothing to deserve that. It's straight up dumb luck. I appreciate the fact that my parents instilled in me that this is just luck. I'd always done a lot of hands-on volunteer work, which I enjoyed. Well, it was really when I made the decision to leave my career, it was either this or go back to school and become a social worker. And I realized that I did not have the mental health stability to be a social worker. Probably the better path for me would be to continue with what I knew, then figure out how to use it and have a platform where it would benefit the causes that are close to my heart. The homeless women thing really happened out of a meeting one day with a friend who referred me to an organization where they were working with intellectually challenged adults. So then my next step was really calling around to places and saying, this is what I want to do. I was very fortunate at the time I had moved back to Southern California to work with an agency that said, we love this idea. What we were able to turn it into was employment and education. I would take the supplies to the organization and the women and I would sit around just big tables in this big empty room. And the women were all vetted from the standpoint that they, if they came from the tents, if they came from the streets, if they came from other sister organizations, we knew they weren't in active recovery. They, there was no active DV threat against them, um, that they were in a stable enough place that they could work and or benefit from the program. And we would sit around a table and work together, building and manufacturing my product. I would often say to them, you're going to listen to my conference calls today. So I would always take my laptop and show them changes to the website or tell them about appointments I had coming up or trips or shows. Let's be honest, making an elastic bracelet is not a job skill. But we used it as a template for life skills, everyday skills, business skills. They would quite often say, I don't like this bead. We'd have buckets in the middle of the table. If it was, we called them the dud buckets. If a bead was broken or there was something wrong with it. And so one day through and what's wrong with that? Well, it's got a spot. And then here I am saying, oh, it's a natural occlusion. It's part of the bead. You know, it's like, what are you doing? She said, well, it doesn't matter. It's got a spot on it. And when I'm putting it in the piece, it looks like an eyeball staring at me. I don't want some woman who's spending her hard-earned money. She's going to look at it and the eyeball is going to be staring at her and she's not going to want it. I don't think it's a good beat. And so while I'm blown away (laughs) by this response and my heart is swelling because it means she's engaged, she's actually Mm -hmm. been paying attention and thinking about the work that she's doing. I said, do you know what that is? what you've just done. No, I said, it's quality control. Engaged with the product, made an observation that it is not up to the standards, even though I hadn't thought to tell you about that. 
Mm-hmm. And so by using little examples of those things, oh, and then by the way, this is how it affects our cost sheet. Each piece costs X amount and we've just thrown out one piece and we have to add another. So we would use the manufacturing process to teach individual lessons that would apply to any other job that they had. I use a lot of food analogies because, well, because I love to eat, but also they've all made a meal at some point. So they understand making a product is no different than making a meal. You have an idea, then you make samples or you create a recipe where your recipe is your instructions on how to assemble this piece. And your grocery list is the same as your supplies list. And you QC your groceries when they come home and you QC the beads and and the other materials. And you have to assemble things in a certain order that everything's parallel. So even if it's a car or a table, they under came to understand that they really knew so much more that they realized Mm -hmm. is transferable into the world. It's just every industry has its own vocabulary, its own timeline maybe extra steps, Mm -hmm. but in essence, they're all the same concept. So I wanted them to go on their interview that they knew that they already understood the more confident they were going out and getting jobs. That was the goal. I think that's so incredible. There's not enough. I think it's unique where a lot of people can throw money at organizations where they can say, oh, you know, here's $100,000 to donate. But really, what they really need is education. Are those upskilling, and that's my favorite word in this vocabulary now, um, but it's those upskilling tactics and those tools that they need in order to become successful, not just through shelters or this is the, the founders with the sisterhood, but it's tools that they can use in order to build a life for themselves, external from outside help. It is essential to their development and progression. So I think that that is absolutely incredible. It's not on the same side with assisting with um, you know homeless women and women who are recovering addicts and and stuff like that. I think that that's so admirable and it's making me, it's it's like churning my mind about being like, hmm, how can I get involved with something like this? It's also reassuring that think outside the box with what you can do to help. You don't have to give people money. You can give people skills. You can give people tools in order to learn a couple of things to be able to get a better job so they can get off of the street, so they can take their kids to a better school. So it's all of these things that that are made possible. Well, and giving of your time helps in so many ways that money doesn't. It really validates people. It literally helps them feel seen. It helps them feel worth it. I mean, they certainly appreciate the money that will get them a coat or feed them or shelter them. Of course. But if you make time be education, I believe, is is tenfold. I agree. It's like that old phrase, give a man a fish, give a woman a fish, or teach her to fish. It is... And that's exactly it. It's teaching them to fish. It's teaching them to fish. It's teaching them so they can do it on their own instead of just giving it to them. And I agree with you. It's the time spent with 
each individual that is so essential and something that they're going to remember for for a lifetime. What would you say to um, someone who's interested in launching their own jewelry brand? What kind of advice or wise words would you give them? Um, If you could tell yourself something all those years ago when you were first getting started that you wish you would have known? Get help from the beginning. Have a founder, have a partner, have a sounding board, and don't be afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. It's going to happen. And humor. <laughs> it's so important to laugh at ourselves when we do something that's just like, oh my goodness, how on earth did I do that? You know, and it's looking at yourself and it's saying, okay, this is not the end of the world. This may have been a hurdle. This is not going to end me. I'll get through this. But I do find it interesting um, that your very first one was get help from the beginning. That is so true. It is surrendering to the fact that you can't do it all. And it is it is so important to have a support system and having that help from the beginning. Thank you so much for, for all of your time. It's been amazing to learn from you, hear your vision, learn about your company and the strides that you're making in this industry and really setting the bar high for, for individuals within your industry. So, so thank you so much. That was very kind and generous of you. Thank you. We need to reverse this and I, somebody needs to be interviewing you.